I had sent out an email, I hope you got it this week, asking everybody to read through First Peter this week. I'm going to kind of do an overview of First Peter. It's good for me to do this as a pastor to try to preach the whole book in one message. Um, and of course, we obviously can't preach through everything here, but the point is to try to get the big themes and the big picture in an entire letter so that we are thinking about those themes when we read this. And I hope that this will stimulate you, maybe even to go back and before the Sabbath closes today, is to read it all the way through again and receive a wonderful blessing from having God's eternal Word being inscribed in your mind this way through preparing ahead of time, through having a message be delivered that will be like a salt shaker that might have some savor to it that would stimulate you to go back and to study this. Read through it again tonight and let that seal up a blessing in your heart and mind this day on this letter of 1 Peter So let us pray first and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for your mercies. We thank you for your goodness to us this day. And Lord, we need your help both for preaching grace and for hearing grace that I might be able to keep my mind focused and and the people in the pew might be able to keep their mind focused as we talk about eternal things. So Lord, give us that grace now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start out and uh, we'll title this, first of all, The Life of Divine Favor. The Life of Divine Favor. And as I was thinking about a title for this, I I had several titles that went through my mind because some of the main themes you're going to see throughout 1 Peter is divine favor, separation, and suffering. And joy in the middle of all of that and so as you go through each chapter you'll see those kind of themes and I was thinking about maybe a good title for this might be separation and suffering because it starts out talks about how you're separated by God into this thing called the church and that separation brings suffering and faith and joy I was also thinking about the title preparation and purification as you're prepared to believe, and you are being purified through suffering. I also thought about regeneration and revelation. It starts out with regeneration there in verse 3, and you are being revealed to the world through your suffering. I thought about union and unification. So you're in union with Christ, and through that union, you are being unified with believers around the world into this body of Christ. I, th- I was thinking about favored and favoring. Now, you are favored, and over time, as you are being favored more and more, the world is going to hate you for that. I was thinking about knowing and being known. So there's several themes that come out of those words as we go through First Peter today. And to get the foundation, I'm just going to read through the first nine verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit. That's regeneration. You've been separated by the Spirit. 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There you see justification. We can also see faith in that, and that obedience is always produced. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And, and just to remind you again, there's Father, Son, and Spirit in verse 2. Trinitarian salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We see their regeneration and that hope of resurrection in Christ. To an inheritance. This is what all of this, what you have been separated to, believer. To an inheritance. Incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season. So he's been talking about this separation, the divine favor that rests upon you. He's been talking about that through the first part of this chapter here in chapter 1. And now he's going to talk about the purpose of the suffering that will result because that divine favor rests upon you. He said, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love in whom, though now you see Him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So as I go through each of these chapters, I'm going to be looking at divine favor, suffering, and Christ. And because Peter writes differently, this was pointed out to me right before the service, Paul puts all the doctrine in the first three chapters and then all the practical application in the second half of the three chapters. Peter writes different. So does James. He's mixing it up. You're going to be getting doctrine and commands and application and explanation as he goes in every chapter. And so we have to recognize that and pay attention to it as we go through. So we see the divine favor through those first six verses, foreknown and loved, separated by the Holy Spirit, washed by Christ. And then there's a blessing on all those who are under this divine favor. Grace, peace multiplied to you. And then he starts talking about the suffering here, the purpose. Eleven times in this first Peter, you will see the word suffer or suffering used. And then there are other words that are also used which really mean suffering as well. And we'll look at some of those, not all of them. One of the first things, the first words that Paul uses besides suffering is here in verse 6 where he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. That word temptation there means trial. So this is not like talking about Somebody being tempted over a drink or having some kind of a sinful temptation. This is talking about a trial of faith. And the word means the trial of your fidelity to Christ. The trial of your integrity. 
The trial of virtue. The trial of constancy. This is the trial that your faith is going through. You see, faith is always under a trial in this life. And in different seasons of your life, it's going to be to different degrees. But what makes it precious is that faith always overcomes. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? We have that in the story of Job. We have it in your life that faith always overcomes. That's why he says here, wherein you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a season, you're in heaviness through many trials. We see this faith that overcomes described in the parable of the sower in Luke Luke 8.13, talking about some who don't have true faith. They are on the rock, and when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they don't have any root. And for a while believe. This is not a believing unto salvation there. They believe, and in a time of temptation, that's the same word. The time of trial, they fall away. And they prove they never had this pure gold of faith. In Hebrews 3.8, you're told, don't harden your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. That word there, day of temptation, that's the same word, trial. For 40 years long, Israel was tried in a desert. And God always had a remnant that believed, who had true faith that overcame in the middle of that trial. You right now are in the desert of your life and the trials of your faith. And if you be in Christ, your faith will overcome every trial. And your faith is being purified in those trials of life that you are going through. In Revelation 3.10, we see this word trial used again, speaking of this suffering that you are going through to purify your faith. He says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation, the hour of trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That trial is upon all the world today and every day. And your faith will overcome that. What are the trials that are upon the earth today? Temptation, the trial of your faith today. Well, your money goes 10% less far this month than it did a year ago. The power of your money is shrinking. Is that a trial? Yeah, it's somewhat of a trial for us. Not as much for us as it is for some. But when that happens, what do we say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That trial is purifying our faith and saying, Lord, I'm not going to flee to the mountain of the dollar. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust in the Lord. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, in the next verse there, And this word trial is very similar here to the word temptation in verse 6. 
that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Why is faith more precious than gold? You'll know that one instant after you die. In a way that we can't really know now, but which we can understand a little bit. But when you're dead, you're going to realize, I can't get to my bank account anymore. And for those who die without this precious faith, they're going to realize all the money and influence and everything they had can't buy their way out of hell. Faith is more precious than gold because eternity is at stake. You're going to die someday. My job as a preacher and a father is to prepare you for that day of separation and to tell you that if you be in Christ, if you're a repentant believer, God is preparing your soul right now in this room for that day. And the trials that you're going through in your life, the sufferings that you're going through, He is purifying your faith so that on that day, glory, hallelujah, your faith is going to shine like pure gold. We see that faith in the lives of Joseph, the life of Jonah, even the life of Christ. you know that Christ had faith? Not like we. He had a perfect faith. He said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He trusted his Father with everything he had. So faith is more precious than gold. Why? Because for what will you be profited if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What will you give in exchange for your soul? So this faith that is being purified is more precious than gold. Satan said to the Lord in Job 2.4, This is true for most, but not believers. Skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. So think about what trials are you undergoing right now? Here's the purpose. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we see the divine favor in chapter 1. We see the suffering, the purpose of suffering laid down in chapter 1. We also see Christ here in chapter 1. We've seen Him in verse 3. We see Him in verse 11 where we read, about the prophets, searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand of what? The sufferings of Christ. And throughout this letter, you're going to see that Christ is the example for your suffering. And Peter points to Him again and again as your example for how to suffer as a Christian. Throughout this country today at campuses, outspoken Christians are regularly demeaned, debased, and targeted for their beliefs by professors, social groups, college organizations, ridicule them and call them hateful and bigoted without ever even talking to them and trying to find out what they're about. 
And it's in the midst of that kind of environment, First Peter is going to tell you, it's better to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So your appointed suffering is given to you to prove your faith, to prove that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to purify it, and to prepare you for the day to come. We see that there are a couple of commands. You're commanded to hope and you're commanded to love in chapter 1. You're commanded to hope and you're commanded to love in the midst of your suffering. In chapter 2, we see again the divine favor shown in verse 5. You as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You're living stones that have been separated out of this world. There's a spiritual reality that's going on in your life, believer. When Christ came into the world, it says His world didn't even, His own didn't receive Him. And they didn't know Him. They didn't know who He was. Jesus Christ was so different and opposite of this world, it got Him killed. Christ's perfection is the Holy One, the Holy Lamb. When you're in that presence of holiness, there is a conviction of sin that takes place. And when people are in the Holy Spirit's presence that dwells in you, and you live the way that Peter outlines that believers will live, they're going to hate you just like they hated Christ. It said that they hated Christ without a cause. You're going to find it's going to happen in, in your life too. I, I saw a short clip with Ray Comfort this week, uh, talking to somebody on the street, and... Uh, and they said, the person said they didn't like Christians. He said, why don't you like Christians? She said, because they, they hate homosexuals. No, we don't. That's a lie. We grieve that image-bearing creatures are so distorted that they would love themselves so much that they would be given up to that kind of sin. It breaks our heart to see it. It breaks our heart to see it. We hate the distortion that sin has brought on us in the world. And so, you are living stones called to be built up in the church to suffer false accusations to suffer as Christ suffered. And as you go through chapter 2, you'll see He talks about Christ there as the stone of stumbling and rock of offense in verse 8. Who's called precious in verse 7. You that believe He is precious. We have precious Christ, precious blood, and precious promises in 1 and 2 Peter. And you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of Him who's called you out of darkness. You've been called out of, there's that divine favor, out of, into His marvelous light. 
And suffering is going to be the natural result of that. Suffering is going to be the natural result of that. This reality of faith is proven in the place of your desire, which is to say in your heart. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. The divine favor in verse 11, dearly beloved. That divine favor causes you to be strangers and pilgrims in this world. And you can no longer indulge in the things that this world is indulging in. Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Part of your suffering, believer, in this life is this warring against lust. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In the place of your desire, you have a capacity to love holy spiritual things. You have a capacity to love the moral law, the Ten Commandments. In your daily battle of Christian suffering, there's a place in your heart where the old nature still resides. Romans 7, 23. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. You're going to have to do battle there regularly. That's part of your suffering, believer. These fleshly lusts war against the soul, which means they fight. And the fight is that you've got to abstain, which means you've got to hold yourself back from the cravings of your body, longings, desiring things that... And most of y'all have been through that. Y'all know what that raging of lust is in your breast. And you know how that wars in your heart. And there's times that when you're in those battles, you're going to come out and you're going to, you're going to feel defiled in that wrestling. And you're going to realize this warring is a warring against my soul, my spiritual nature. This is polluting not just to my skin or my mind, it's my very soul. That's it, wrestling for purity and fighting against that nature. That's why Paul in Romans 12.1 would say, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That means we've got to put to death these bodies of sin. For if you live after the flesh, 
you will die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And in this warring, Paul would say in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to put off the old nature, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. What does that look like for you? How do you not make provision for your flesh? You've got to know what your besetting sin is. And you've got to make sure that you don't have a back door to it. Don't feed the monster. Right? Second Corinthians 7.1 Having therefore these promises, the promise of resurrection, the promise of hope, the promise of love, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Suffering is the battle with that old nature and the new nature. You know there's also suffering that's involved in submission to the levels of authority that you're called to submit to. We did Romans 13 last night. The companion text begins in 13, here in chapter 2. It says, you Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be unto the king is supreme or unto governors. And he goes through that same section there. And he talks about workers being submission to their bosses. Even in the body of Christ, submitting to one another. And younger people submitting to elders. And it starts out in... In chapter 3 here, likewise you wives being subject subjection to your husbands. So in the context of Peter, of suffering, there's going to be suffering when you've got to submit to authorities that are sinners. This letter is being written in 60 A.D., about 60 to 64, depending on who you read. This is the time of the great persecutions of the early church, Nero and others. In 70 A.D., in just a few years, Jerusalem is going to be completely razed to the ground and left to be rubbles and piles of trash for over a thousand years. Wives, you're going to have to be in submission to a man that's a sinner. That's not always going to be fun, is it? Husbands, you've got to, in a sense, also be in submission to your wife. Which means she's the only one you look at. You submit to the marriage covenant. You're faithful to her. It means you listen to her advice. You pay attention. She, he goes through here in verse 3 and he says... You are heirs together of the grace of life. Give honor to her. That's your what? Prayers be not hindered. 
Children, there's times your parents are going to be inconsistent and they're going to promise something they don't deliver on. All of us are going to have to suffer as believers in this authorities that God has designed temporarily until He wraps this show up. And so part of our Christian suffering we see in this letter to Peter is through being in submission to the authorities. God has commanded us to do that. There's going to be times you're going to have to suffer wrongfully. That's another theme that you see here. There's going to be times that people you used to hang around with before you got born again are going to start talking evil about you. Say, why didn't he go out and party with us anymore? And they're going to ridicule you. And they're going to see that change in you. And so you're going to have to suffer wrongfully. There's times you're going to have to submit to the government government, and they're going to speak evil of you. There's, that's part of life. That's part of life. Jesus said in John 15, 21, But all these things they will do unto me for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Blessed are you which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Falsely. Emily was called a liar last night by the police. She was accused of being drunk and she was treated badly. Most of us hadn't been through that experience. She's 18. I hate she had to go through that. But I think that she could take this text here and and think on these things tonight. And now she knows what it means. Psalm 69.4 said that they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. So you're going to be buffeted for your faults. In 1 Peter 2.20, what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. Buffeted means to be to strike with the fist, be punched in the gut. We are to take that patiently. That's acceptable to God, and we're to that's we're only to suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. Peter points that out here. As you're wrestling with your sin nature, there's going to be times if we do sin, we're going to suffer for doing bad. That's not what we're supposed to suffer for is doing bad. If we suffer for speeding and getting a speeding ticket and having to pay some money, that's our fault. God is faithful to put us in situations where we will suffer so that we will have our faith purified so that we might understand this spiritual reality. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul said, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. That, that's that same word, strike with the fist. Lest I should be exalted above measure. What is your thorn of the flesh? I believe every believer has got some 
I believe that aging and the breaking down of the body is how God weans us off of this world and prepares us for a better world. For we are saved by that we see not. But if, and so we're given that hope to hope in a better resurrection, a better body. And so we have thorns of flesh given us on purpose by God to purify our faith. And because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't trust Him. So when a believer receives a thorn or an affliction or a trial, it can be seen how they suffer. That sweetness comes out of their life. But if you take a person who's only a professed believer and you send them trials and afflictions, the only thing that's going to come out of them is bitterness and vinegar and unforgiveness and faithlessness. They will walk away from Jesus Christ and the church. But the believer knows all this is sin and love, and we receive it saying, Thank you, Father, for loving me enough to spank me and to keep me in line. Thank you, Father, for the thorn of the flesh that helps, helps me in this battle of sin and also the realization that we're made in God's image and we do have great dignity and abilities and gifts. You see, it's the ballast in the boat that keeps us upright. So we must suffer to keep the body of flesh down. And from that suffering, there is a killing of sin and there's also a joy that grows and abides. Let me just tell you, whenever we suffer and we sense the joy that comes from it, That's proving that you have true faith. And that's when you say, Hallelujah! I'm in this trial and where I could be laying down or getting depressed or giving up, I'm sensing joy. And I still believe, even though I'm going through this trial, whatever it is. And when you recognize that, I'm still believing. I'm still going. I'm still following Christ. Then you rejoice and you say, yes, I have true faith. It's been proved by the trial. Well, I'm not going to get to everything I wanted to. But let's go over to chapter 4. We see the divine favor throughout this letter. And again, I'm just giving you some tidbits, verses here and there, some things to think about. That divine favor, because God loves you and has separated you, the world is going to hate you. It's just like in the world, if, if one child is getting more favor than another, what does that cause? I mean, whenever the people of the world see that God's divine favor rests on you, what has that got in Israel to be called the people of God for thousands of years. Hatred, wars and attacks. So when the divine favor rests upon you, this is what's going to happen. In a world of sin that's fallen under the prince of the power of the air. And in all of this, Christ is our example of how we are to behave. 
For as much then, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, For as much then, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Christ submitted to sinful authorities. Christ submitted to the death sentence. He didn't have to. He submitted and all of those things. And he will go on and say here, you know what, Christ did not revile whenever they were spitting and beating him. All he ever did was speak truth. The few words he spoke, he said, I am the Christ. You said it, buddy. And then the seven sayings on the cross. We have nothing but grace and truth and a roaring example of grace and mercy in the face of an evil world. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Christ was in a real body. He had a real thorn of crowns driven into his head. He had real blood probably dripping down in his eyes. Real sweat. He had real furrows down his back. And the psalmist said, they plowed my back with the cat of nine tails. Pieces of bone and metal and glass would stick on his back and then they would rip it off as they did that 39 times. To, they were so skilled at that, it was to the point of death. They knew 30, they, could, they could beat a man almost to the point of death, but not kill him so he could suffer some more. Christ suffered in the flesh. Real suffering. It's a mistake for us to think, well, he was the Son of God. He could endure it. He was a man. And He endured suffering for us in the flesh. And so there's this whole mind of suffering. It says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. The same mind. It's a mindset. And this letter is helping you have the mindset, the purpose of suffering, to show I've got real faith. I'm suffering because God loves me, divine favor on me. Therefore, I'm rejoicing in the suffering. And I have the mindset that because I'm unified to Christ and I'm in the body of Christ and I'm one with Christ, then I will suffer also. And because this Christ is now at the right hand of God, as he finishes chapter 3 there, he says now he's on the right hand of God, and all authority is subject to him. So we can endure suffering in this life under sinful authorities, because Christ is over all of them now. We can arm ourselves with a mind of suffering, and we can submit as he submitted 
Paul would talk about the fiery trial of faith in verses 12 through 14. Let's just look at those a second as we move to the end here. Think it not strange. Beloved. Again, that word of divine favor. You are beloved. I've always loved you. God's divine favor has always rested upon you. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Peter's telling us about this whole letter. This is not strange for the believer to be in trials and suffering. But what are we to do? When the trial comes, rejoice. Rejoice. That fiery trial means the burning by which metals are roasted and reduced. Now that's the picture that he's been using back to chapter 1. When he says, more precious than gold that perishes. How do you purify gold? How do you purify iron or any metal? Every metal has a melting point. And you heat that metal until it becomes liquid. And the way you separate and purify things in, the chem- in laboratory and chemistry is by going to the melting point. And you separate things because some things will remain solid. Some things will turn into a gas. And some will turn into a liquid. And through this fiery trial, your faith is being purified so all the scum of unbelief will rise to the top so that it can be scraped off. This fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So rejoice when you're in the fire and trials. And recognize that you're either coming out of one, having a little breather between them, or going into another one. Right? (laughs) That is a life. And he tells us here, but rejoice. Rejoice inasmuch as you are, this is a great mystery here, you are partakers of Christ's suffering. Partakers of Christ's suffering. We have the same idea in Colossians 1. In Colossians 1.23, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul said, I suffer for you as this bringer of the gospel. And fill up that which is behind of all the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church. Paul is saying there's a sense in which the body suffers and leaders suffer in the church and you will suffer in the church whereby because we're all in union with Christ, He's the head and we're the body that we all suffer together. That's why when people weep, what do we do? We weep with them. When we hear of someone being thrown in prison for the gospel, we grieve. We long to hear messages about how 
the Church of Christ is doing around the world. Isn't that good news to hear what God is doing in the Philippines? And we rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for His sake. Isn't that what Peter said? Peter's preaching, gets thrown into prison, and they beat him and let him go. And they, he, they were rejoicing that they were beaten. Who does that? Why? Because he said, we, that we were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's just not an American mindset, is it? In America, we want to make all we can, can all we get, and sit on the can. And brother, I'll tell you, brother's message last week, I'm thinking a lot about that. How we approach money is very different the way the church in the Philippines is approaching money. And I, I've got to think about that and chew on that for a while. And I'm, I'm sure you do too. Is there anything we could be doing differently or better? Do I need to be, you know, what, what do I need to do, Lord? And there's a type of suffering that comes when we see the Lord working like that in that church and it helps us examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. So rejoice. Rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for Christ. So we are to arm ourselves with this mind. He tells us here, we are to have this mind with thoughts and intentions like Christ, to be faithful, obedient, submissive, we're to be holy in a joyful state of mind. We're to realize that sin is a delusion. It's a pipe dream. There's so many distractions that will keep you away from spending time in letters like First Peter that will help you. Binging on Netflix will not help you in your suffering. We're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and stand our ground, suffer in the flesh, and cease from sin. As he goes into chapter 5, Paul has a special exhortation to elders. He said, feed this flock of God. And, and Paul says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ there. Feed the flock of God. And he goes on and tells you to humble yourself. Beware, Satan's going around like a mighty lion to try to get your eyes off Christ. He went, he, you know, God told, Satan told God, if you take away all of Job's money, he will curse you to your face. And of course he didn't. And then he said, well, uh, if you take away his health, he'll curse you to your face. Well, God led him to take away his health. And faith was born out to be pure and greater than the liar. And so you've got to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about seeking to try to devour you and to shake you when you're in the middle of the trials. Remember the purpose of the trials. Cast all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And in chapter 5, verse 10, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So Peter begins with divine favor and tells you the purpose of your suffering. And he finishes this letter saying, you're going to have to suffer for a while. But once you're perfected, it'll be over. It will be finished. 
For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So brothers and sisters, your suffering produces joy because it reveals the reality of divine favor on you. And that divine favor produces faith and obedience. God is the cause, and we're just the effects. For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He suffered the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. That's 1 Peter 3.18, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We're now part of this story, His story, because the Holy One of God suffered in our place on the cross of Calvary. He was made to be my sin and your sin so that we might be made His righteousness and His perfections. That's the great exchange, the greatest truth that we have. Peter's telling us, but now in this life, we get to testify to that truth through how we suffer, how we react, how we live. How are you doing with that? How do you react when you get a coarse word from someone? How do you react when things don't go your way? As believers, we're to bring forth the pure gold of grace and mercy and submission. And we're to bring forth honey and sweetness as we live this life of faith. May God bless His Word.